0: I have a confession to make to you this morning, and that was yesterday when I was here with my wife. We were leaving, and I was a little bit discouraged when I left the church. And the reason is that we had done this a uh, beautiful prep, prepping the church property for the 10th anniversary celebration. And so many hands in this room were involved in doing that. And just noticed out of the corner of my eye on the way out that the flowers looked like they were dead. So I look over at Allie and I'm saying, like, how was I, you know, a knucklehead enough to not water the plants or make sure that that happened? And I, I, I said, should we run over to Home Depot and pick up some new ones, you know, kind of to make sure that the people who planted them didn't feel you know, bad about it and that it looked good. And she said, Oh no, it's going to be, it's going to be fine. And then as I walked over to the church from the church offices this morning, Lois Miles, uh, the receptionist here, she's an amazing person, but she's down at the flowers and she's picking off the little dead heads of the flowers. And she said, Sean, I want to show you something. She didn't know I had had this conversation with Allie yesterday. And she said, I want you to just see that underneath this, is new life that's about to bloom underneath it, that they weren't dead at all. They're just, they're thriving. They're going through seasons. And, you know, we all chose to live in Northeast Ohio, so we know seasons, right? And, and we understand that, that there's time periods when we go through it where it feels like something's dead, right? But instead, it's actually thriving. It's just going through its next step. And I confess that this morning that that for me, there's a part of that that just stands back and just says, thanks, thank you, Lord, for continuing to be at work in your church. You love this place. He loves you. For those of you who are here for the first time, we wanna welcome you. We're so honored that you'd give up time from your Sunday morning, not to just be with us, but to worship the living God. And I wanna thank the worship team for leading us in that way. I'm gonna ask you to join me in prayer as we dedicate this time to the Lord. And I want us to... To find ourselves accepting, Lord, that you are God that is at work in our lives, even in the dormant time periods, in the times that we feel like we 're stuck in in a cycle of discouragement, Lord, I just thank you that that you are God who knows us and and Lord, that that from fall and winter comes spring lord that that there's life that can flow out of our experiences and As we are at the beginning of a new series, I just want to celebrate with you your goodness, your word that is the word of life, Lord, that it brings us hope, your ever-present comfort in our time of need. I just celebrate that with you. Lord, I thank you for each and every person. In our church family, this last week, we, we mourn the loss of a blessed brother that was faithfully a part of our church body. And as we pray for his family, we continue to pray for your loving presence. But we learn that we never take tomorrow for granted. Lord, we, we thank you for the privilege of giving us this life that you've given us. And so today we invest this time. We wanna thank you for our junior hires that are um, middle schoolers that are serving in Cleveland, that are representing your loving, loving kindness there on the missions trip. And we just wanna thank you for all those that serve at every layer of Hope Church to bring you glory and honor. You're worth it, Lord, we believe it. And so today we dedicate this time to you. We thank you for the privilege to fellowship together at Hope Church. And we thank you for this day. And we ask that you who began a good work in us would be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. So I don't know if you uh, can relate to this, but I love at the beginning of a new series, we're going to be going through a series called Restoration Through the Book of Nehemiah. And I kind of like that guy that's on the roller coaster that's just about to get to the top of it and we're, going, we're excited about what's ahead. I love the book of Nehemiah, partially because of the fact that Nehemiah is a book that shows us what we have the potential of becoming under the hand of a God that's supernaturally at work in the world. He's weaving together a story of history. This story of history based upon individuals that were rebelling from their God, but ultimately that God's going to use individuals in that process to be a part of restoration of something that was deeply broken. And we're going to see through the hands of a man that God chooses to use, Nehemiah, that he's going to do a miraculous thing that's going to alter the course of history. And for some of us in this room, I'm guessing that there's times for us that we have found ourselves in a position where we'd say, that's somebody else's problem, or that's someone else's situation. This, this individual, you might recognize him. He was in the news about 10 years ago. His name is Hugo Tailgax. He's 31 years old, New York City, Queens, And he noticed a woman who was being mugged there in Queens and and she was being mugged mugged at knife point and he ultimately intervened. There's a, a camera footage that caught this happening. And so we know after the fact that he intervened bravely, ultimately was stabbed and then found himself on the ground. And over the next hour and a half that the video footage records, there are 20 different people that notice him and no one does a thing about it. In fact, ultimately, there's there's video footage of an individual that walks by and and it looks like they're taking out their cell phone to call 911, and instead, what they do is they take a picture. There's another story of a person who who pushes them over, sees the blood, and then goes and walks right on. Now, we know inside, when we hear this story, we we first of all would say, oh, that, that would never be me, right? Like that, that as a Christ follower, we understand the value of human life. And we say, we ought to be people who pursue, right? That we ought to be people who see other people's circumstances as something that we care about because of who we are in Christ. And Nehemiah is going to be a man, as we study his story, that he chooses to engage in a story that was separate from his life experience immediately. And ultimately, he's going to have a massive impact for the kingdom because he engages in someone else's struggle. There's a great story in England uh, several years ago. There's a wealthy family that had invited another wealthy family over to their home. And one of their boys ended up getting in the swimming pool, and he was drowning. And the groundskeeper heard this happen. He heard the scream of help, and he climbed the fence, went in, helped this young Winston out, and his name was Winston Churchill. And Winston was saved that day. In fact, his family was so moved by the heroism of the guy who climbed the fence that they offered him a reward, whatever. And he said, you know what I'd really love is I'd love it if my son could go to medical school. He can't afford it, but it'd be awesome. Awesome for him to be able to get a degree. Well, years later, Winston Churchill was struggling through sickness. The man who invented penicillin or discovered penicillin and used it um, ultimately was the one that the king called in to minister to Winston Churchill, and it was the son of the man who saved him that many years before. And Winston has a great quote about it. It's rare that one man is involved in saving a man's life twice, you know? But you you hear this story and you recognize like that's where we want to be, right? We want to be the kind of people who go in, that, that see the pain and we head into it because we want to be a part of what God wants to do in the process of healing. But there's a component of this that that we recognize if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter one. We're gonna look at four verses together today. The the initial verses in Nehemiah chapter one, verses one through four are profound. Because what we see is that Nehemiah as a man is separate from the situation. And yet he chooses to engage in a beautiful way. And, and in reality, we see his emotion and his pain over the plight of other people. And as his brother catches him up on the plight of the, the individuals that had been a part of the exile from Judah, ultimately to Babylon, and now that they've been permission to, given permission to return, that, that he's wanting to hear when he asks his brother the question, the walls are back up, Right? Like our our people are good, right? Things are going well in the community, but he was willing to ask a hard question. And ultimately the answer to that question is going to be one that moves him in his life so that he moves into action in such a way that ultimately God's gonna use Nehemiah as a man who's going to concede that his comfort is less important than the needs of others. God's gonna supernaturally use him to ultimately change the history of the world to fulfill his promises to God's people and when we study this story together I hope that for you that this doesn't become something that's distant for you that you say oh that's good for him that's great he was a special guy at a unique position but instead that as we watch this that we ask ourselves the questions when it comes to the plight of other people are we people that ignore it or are we people that do everything that we can to engage in the midst of that And if we are people that engage what we're going to do is we're going to learn from this man nehemiah what it looks like for us to be a part of restoration that we act that we move into it we're a source of healing and to be a part of what god wants to do in his world so here we see this this story that's going to unfold and if you watch it with me if you stick with us what we're going to see happen is we're going to see that nehemiah is going to be a part of the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem after he prays and fasts that it's going to be 52 days that it's going to take to restore the walls of Jerusalem. Now in Northeast Ohio, we know construction, right? Nothing happens in 52 days, right? But there's a component of this that they're going to do something that's going to be so profound. There's these images that we're going to see in Nehemiah where one family's working on the wall and there's somebody literally behind them that's got their sword that's protecting them, that they literally have each other's backs, right? There's going to be stories where people sacrificially invest in... And so I pray for us that as we study this, that it's not just a distant experience, but instead it's one that we see a man like Nehemiah choosing to prayerfully engage in the plight of others. And the results of that are something tremendous. It's amazing the results that come from it. So if you have your Bibles, follow along with me in Nehemiah chapter four, beginning in verse, or chapter one, I'm sorry, beginning in verse one, we're going to read the first four verses. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hikolail. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. The initial response of Nehemiah when he finds this is that he recognizes that that there's a crisis that's on hand. He was willing to ask this question. And I suppose, as we go back to this illustration, that for those individuals, the 20 individuals that saw this man who was going through his suffering, that they had that ability to be numb to it in such a way to say, you know what? That's somebody else's problems. He, he's in the citadel. Later, we learn that he is the cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah is in a great place. He's in a a place of comfort, he's in a position of authority, he's in a position of power, and yet he chose to notice the situation that his people were in. He asked his brother the question, how are our people doing? And then as he heard this, he heard the unfolding story of the history of the people that he's painfully aware of. He was aware of the attack that happened at the hands of one king that was a fulfillment of prophecy that was ultimately based on the in, inability for God's people to live up to their calling and that under the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, that that the siege that took place, the destruction of Jerusalem was one that was tragic for his people. And, and there's a component of this story as it unveiled that, that he washed his people through their neglect of the worship of their God. to result in a painful persecution this is recorded in jeremiah chapter 25 we we hear the story of the tragedy of the people of israel that they found themselves being looted by a pagan king and then carried off many of them to babylon but what we hear in nehemiah's voice as he asks this is a is an optimism has it been restored what has happened yet in the history of our people And ultimately, what he hears is that he hears the fact that his people have continued to suffer. The walls are still down to his shame and to their shame. They're exposed to the hostile community that are around it. They're dangerous neighbors. We know historically that this this exile recorded in Ezra as well represented a lack of true worship of the living God. It represented a neglect of the things that were most valuable in God's kingdom. And ultimately, this this transition that happens, ultimately, what we know with Nebuchadnezzar is that he would lead to the money and things that he took from the the conquering peoples would turn into one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. In modern day Iraq, that there would be the hanging gardens that were historically known to be represented by Nebuchadnezzar. And so we see their plight, that it was, that was one that was tragic, that ultimately saw their families and lives separated. But here in this temple, in the, um, the archaeology in Iran currently today, what we know is that Nehemiah was in one of the three temples of King Artaxerxes. That he was in one of the three homes, the summer home for Artaxerxes. And here he is a cupbearer to the king that he's not worried about his daily bread. He's not worried about what his next meal is going to be. He's not directly impacted by the plight of Jerusalem. And instead, actually the man who's his boss, the one who he's cut bare had had said that it wasn't time for them to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. His, his King Artaxerxes had ultimately made that decree. So here he is, he's listening to his brother. He's struggling through this, but he's in Susa, Iran, the citadel, the summer palace, And in the midst of this, he notices still the plight of his people, and he chooses to do something about it. He chooses to engage. And what we know from the emotion of the moment is that Nehemiah ultimately wept. That his response to the crisis was this. It says this in verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So here, Nehemiah moves into a mode where his, his life represents how serious he's taking. He goes does this for four weeks, or four months, I'm sorry, we're told elsewhere, that there's this this mode. That, now, Now, I want you to clarify. I want to clarify something with fasting and prayer that he's doing here. This wasn't because he was on a diet, right? He's not trying to lose a few pounds here. But what he's trying to do is he's trying to say, this is so significant to me. The plight of these people are so serious to me that I'm going to do everything that I can in my power to to weep and mourn before the Lord, to respond to him. And the way that it says it in the text, it says that he sat down and he wept and mourned for days. He continued fasting and praying for the God of heaven. For some of us in this room, we may have to consider what is it that God is asking for us to do in response to the needs of the community that's around us. This is the point of this message that we want to follow along with Nehemiah and say, that's not someone else's responsibility if they just got their act together, but instead to accept the privilege and responsibility of being a part of what God wants to do. And in fasting, what he's doing is he's saying, I'm going to stop eating. Now remember, he was eating good things. We're going to stop eating in order to focus in on what God's doing. And it says in the text, if you read it it says that he was grieving. Now, there's there's one Christian comedian that that talks about our grieving and what we mourn in a different way. And he, he jokes about the fact that his wife one time with his daughter, they were at the mall and his teenage daughter was at the mall and she was disappointed because her friends hadn't shown up at the mall at the right time. And the mom was watching, the daughter was distraught. She was so frustrated with how it was all playing out. And she says, the Mom ends up saying, "Honey, we know this is the worst right Any anybody ever say that phrase? This is like the worst you, you have just a few of you okay. That phrase he goes on to say, Can you imagine those miners you know ten years ago that were in Chile in the in the mine and they you know have spent they end up spending almost a month and a half there They're, They had no food, no air, limited water I mean it was a terrible situation and can you imagine those guys sitting there suffering together and um, the wine guy says, "You know, this is really the... W- oh, oh, wait, no, maybe not. Do you remember that time at the mall when our friends didn't show up? You know, <laughs> like, it's it's so goofy, right? But the the matter of what the worst is, is a matter of perspective, right? And and there's a component of this that that we as Christ followers, as we look at what Nehemiah was going, he suffering. I mean, he's he's heartbroken over the pain that other people are going through." But his perspective could be given an ounce of perspective when we look at the truth of the New Testament. When we look at what Christ suffered on our behalf, the Apostle Paul said this, I love this phrase. He says, the, I have learned the secret of being content in all, do you remember what it says? In all circumstances, Right. And if you if you have your bibles you can follow along with me and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses beginning in verse 8. I want you to just hear the words of the apostle Paul when he talks about our struggle, our mourning, our suffering and this recognition of what God has provided for us in the cross. He says we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed." always carrying in the body the death of Jesus Christ, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Do you remember when we studied the book of Colossians that we talked about the resurrection of Christ is the reason why we can anticipate our own bodily resurrection? That Easter gives us the ability to say, someday, absent from the body, present with the Lord. He goes on to say, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. It's a beautiful statement. Then down to verse 16, he says this, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Isn't that true? Our bodies just waste away over time. Amen? Amen. That there's a discouragement that can come from that. But in his understanding of even that reality of life, that he says this, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction. That's a tremendous statement. Is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen, in his words, they are eternal. There's a component of this, of the weightiness of this, of just understanding that in the new covenant, that we have a promise that as the Lord was resurrected, that you and I have a hope of the personal resurrection, that we can celebrate the fact that even in our mourning that there is hope in the midst of it. Now, it's appropriate to understand that when Nehemiah talks about weeping and mourning, that there's something that's significant that may help some of us in the room today. When it comes to mourning, it's appropriate for us to distinguish it from grief. So grief and mourning are not the same experience. Grief is thoughts and feelings that we experience within ourselves, so that's internal. Mourning is a choice of expressing the grief outside of ourselves. If healing is to occur, mourning is necessary. Now I want to clarify something. So even here at Hope and your families and your story, no doubt in this place that there's some of us in this room that that have things that we grieve, that we mourn in our life, that we, we look back on and it's a tragedy in the part of our story. But there's a component of this that we find ourselves being able to recognize that pain, and then being able to call it something tremendously painful. Do you remember the Lord Jesus that at the death of Lazarus before he raised Lazarus from the dead that he wept? And there's a component of this that I find such encouragement in the midst of that reality. But there's also a component of this that we say, but we move forward then. That that pain does not define us, but that we move beyond it. The way that that this, this individual puts it, Eric Fromm, I think is super helpful for me says, to spare oneself from the grief at all costs can be achieved only at the price of total detachment, which excludes the ability to experience happiness. Now, I'll, I'll Christian word it up and I'll say to experience joy, right? that there's a component of this, that, that what he's saying there is what happens inside of us is that there's a possibility, we've talked about this before, that our hearts can become calloused. We put up walls to protect ourselves from other people who could potentially hurt us. And so what we do in that process is we end up saying, we don't, we don't have any room for anybody else in our lives, that we've been hurt before. So there's no place for other people to enter into the pain of our lives because we wanna protect ourselves. And I think what Nehemiah modeled for us here is that he's grieving, he's sad, he has a reason to grieve and to be sad. But he's also ready to look to move forward. One of the painful questions for me sometimes is that someone will ask me about my last name. And I and I'll confess to you that one of the saddest parts of my story in my life is that my grandfather died when my father was younger because he was an alcoholic. He was literally the town drunk in Ottawa, Ohio. And, and the story is tragic in so many ways that, that he had a time in his life where, where he, he knew the truth of the gospel, but he ended up basically living in the cycle of just, just painful addiction. And ultimately, it took his life. And it, and it was something for my father and for his brother and sister that in so many ways could have defined them, right? It was a painful crisis experience. When I say it's painful, when you ask me about my last name, we don't know that much about grandpa because we don't know his story. But there's a component of this that I want to make sure that we catch when we talk about mourning, when we talk about reflecting on those things, that we want to be people who learn from those experiences as well. And so I can look back and I can grieve what was lost in my father's life. I can grieve the fact that I never had the privilege of sitting down with my grandfather and knowing his story. But what I can also recognize, I need to learn from that experience. I need to learn about the decisions that I need to make in my own life and how I'm a father of three precious girls and how I can invest in my children and want to invest in their life long-term. So I grieve, but I also learn from the painful decisions of other people. And I think Nehemiah embodies that in this text. I think he communicates this, and he also embodies something that's so helpful for us, and we're going to get to unpack this next week. I hope you join us again next week, where we're going to look at the prayer that Nehemiah prays, and it's an awesome one. In the next few verses, Nehemiah is going to pray a prayer of dependence that's radical, that, that shows us his convictions and his heart and his love for his God. But there's a component of this that, that he, he describes it to us in the text as being one that immediately, as soon as he heard these words from his brother, he sits down, he weeps, he mourns for days, and he continues fasting and praying for, before the God of heaven for four months Nehemiah faithfully entrusts his overwhelming situation to the Lord. Some of you in this room are in overwhelming situations today, whether it's your job, your family, the dynamics of your life, circumstances, health needs. There's a, a, a com- component of this that I love about Nehemiah is that he was a pray first kind of guy, right? Like he was a guy who in his circumstances, he's like, we're gonna pray first. So we're gonna see this later as we study Nehemiah that even when it comes time where you're like, are they gonna build the walls yet? like, no, he's going to spend time just praying. He's committed to that. I don't know about your story. If you're a person who, when you hurt, when you hurt, when you hit circumstances that are difficult, when life feels bigger than what you can handle, are you a person that prays first or is it an afterthought? I, I think your decision in that area defines so much about the ability to have the secret of being content in all circumstances, about your ability to understand who the King of Kings is and the Lord of Lords, who's in control. So we're going to cover that more next week, but I just want to remind you that Nehemiah was a man who understood what it meant to go to the Lord first. And then finally, we see this, that we see in the text that Nehemiah initiated change. Mentioned to you earlier that it's going to be 52 days when they finally make it to Israel Uh, To Jerusalem. And there's going to be this process of rebuilding that's going to be so inspiring. It's going to be so profound. And there's going to be this dynamic where Nehemiah is going to go, this is so cool, that Nehemiah is going to go from a place where his king that he's serving, that he's cupbearer for, ultimately wasn't interested in seeing the walls of Jerusalem be rebuilt. And that ultimately, he's not going to only say yes, but he's going to fund it. He's going to send the materials to rebuild the walls. He's going to give Nehemiah leave in such a way that he can oversee the rebuilding of the walls. And it's going to be this miraculous work of the hand of God. And I, and I suppose that, that there's a component of this when we watch this, that we say, you know what, was it that Nehemiah was so special was Nehemiah the only person that could have participated in this? That's debated. Scholars debate this in this text. Like, was this a unique calling like Moses? Or, or was this something that anybody that was in Judah at that time could have been a part of? I don't know the answer to that question, but what I will tell you is that today in our circumstances, in our families, in our homes, in our, uh, in our unique job situations, there's a responsibility that the Lord's given us to represent his loving kindness and there's a component, it's funny with our signs, you know, Jim made that, that announcement about the signs. Like I totally get, like when you take a yard side and you put it in your front yard, that there's a component of that that's a little risky, right? Because when you have to associate with a church and then you have to associate with our church, right? And, and there's a component of that. I, my neighbor across the street, she was curious because she knew we'd worked at a different church and she it ended up being an amazing conversation. She shared with me about a sickness in our family, somebody who's dying. And I'm sitting here talking over the little green sign, and I'm just thinking, you know, it's interesting for me. She knew I was a pastor, but for me to be able to to be a part of my neighbor's lives, that's something that, that takes a little bit of risk. And I suppose when it comes to this ability for us to be people who initiate change, whether it's in your school students, whether it's, whether it's in our jobs, and our families, in those dynamics, I believe just like Nehemiah was a catalyst. Isn't that a great word? That he was a catalyst for change. That for you and I, we can be people who can be catalysts for change in the environments that God has placed us in. Ultimately, Nehemiah was going to be a person who chose to see the needs of someone else, to see the needs of his people and ultimately be, to be a tremendous part of the rebuilding process. If you study God's word in Ezra chapter 4, we get this description and, and elsewhere in the book of Ezra and Jeremiah, this description of, of what, what happens spiritually in the lives of God's people, what happens through the hand of Nehemiah. And as we study this together, we're going to look at it in its full context into celebrate the way that God chooses to redeem his people that had been separated from their home as the walls had been burnt and torn down, that ultimately God's going to use them to be a source of tremendous restoration. I think that 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 idea of restoration is beautiful, partially because of the fact that we don't have to do it alone. You know when I before my prayer when I tell that story of Lois reminding me that this place, I don't know anything about plants by the way but when Lois is bending down there and she's picking it off I'm I'm actually as I'm walking across to the office or uh, from the offices I'm I'm discouraged again like oh man those- she noticed the dead flowers you know but but in community what we have is others that are able to lift us up in the midst of it and I like the way that Mervyn Brenneman puts it, no relation to me. He says, uh, like many since his time, Nehemiah's greatness came from asking great things of a great God and attempting great things in reliance upon him. Hope Church, if we do that, I think that it's going to radiate hope in our community. If we live that way, that we uh, ask great things of a great God, and attempt to great things in reliance upon him, I think that there's going to be change that's going to take place that, that may not be the rebuilding of walls, but it may be the restoration of what God wants to continue to do in our mission to reach the community that's around us for Christ. There's no shame in that. There, there's, there's no element of that that I stand back and I say that I'm ashamed of being a part of that. I'm excited to see what God's going to continue to do in and through Hope Church as we strive to reach the community that's around us. I want to challenge you in four specific ways to apply this truth in your life. The first way I want to challenge you is as this this description of this man who his pain is there, but it's easier to see the pain of others as being their struggle. Then I want to ask you the question, are you willing to see and to hear the difficult situations of others? Is that, is that your story? Are you willing to see it? We say that he noticed it. It wasn't just that he saw it and walked by, but that he noticed it. i ask you that question. The second one, what unmet expectations am I grieving? And what does God want me to do about it? I think when we look at grieving in general, one of my best friends in the world died in a car accident when, he, when we were younger in our 20s and and i remember i regret that i was involved in his funeral because it was just so painful at some level i i grieved so deeply and i spoke at the funeral and i just remember i didn't make any sense the things i said and but but in the midst of that it was just so painful for me and i remember thinking back on that like what, what was i grieving a kitten hit run accident on on I-70 in Colorado tragedy. Was I grieving the fact that I didn't get to see my friend Todd married, that he wasn't part of raising our kids together? What was I grieving? I think it was probably just a layer of unmet expectations, right? And there's a component of this that when we grieve, we, we, we are grieving together as a church family by, for, over one of our own that went to be home with the Lord at age 50, young, uh, in his early 50s. And we, we look back on this and we say, well, what, this wasn't what we expected But there's a component of this in the midst of grief that I think we find ourselves saying, well, what does God want me to do about it? What does he want me to do in the midst of being able to forget what is behind and press forward to what's ahead? I think there's a time for mourning and grief, but I also think it establishes a foundation for us to move forward. The third question this morning is, at what point in difficult decisions do I personally turn to prayer? That's a personal question. That's a fiercely personal question to you. Is it your first thought or is it an afterthought for you? And then finally, what change is God asking me personally to be a part of? What's he asking me to do? What's he calling me to do? I believe that this is every teenager in the room, every student that's in the room, every teacher, every parent, every coworker, every mother, father, that we all, every one of us has a calling that God has asked for us to do. And I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward now. And I'm going to ask you to bow your heads together with me. And I'm just going to ask you to ask the Lord, what is it that he's asking of you to do today? What is it that he's asking of you when it comes to recognizing the needs of a community that's around us? Lord, we love you. Just thank you for the way that you, you worked in the heart of Nehemiah, his compassion, his willingness to go there when it came to... His question to his brother, the willingness to grieve the situation of others. And even though we know that he was in a good place himself, that he was humble enough to choose to care about the plight of others. And that ultimately you're going to use his humble obedience to change the history of the world. Lord, I pray for each and every person that is here at Hope Church this morning. I thank you for their investment of their time this morning their humble obedience to you and i just pray that you'd use us that you'd you'd give us a vision of you that's worthy of you that we would be catalysts for change in the community that's around us in our homes in the environments that we're in and lord we just find ourselves humbly saying thank you for showing us what it means to move from winter to spring to to see new life blooming around us lord that's what we ask that you continue to do. We, we ask that you would humbly continue to use us in spite of ourselves to bring you glory and honor because, Lord, we believe in our core that you're totally worth it. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.